Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our copies of God's Word, please, to the 10th chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, which means we made it through chapter 9. It only took us five Sundays, and most of you are still here from the looks of things. But we're glad uh, to have studied that wonderful chapter. But chapter 10 probably is more familiar to most of your ears than chapter 9. In fact, many of you were probably led to saving faith in Christ through the ministry of the 10th chapter of Romans. Now, we know that when Paul originally penned these words, he did not divide them meticulously into chapters and verses. That is the work of editors years later for our benefit so that we could find passages more easily. Um, Those editors chose to begin the 10th chapter in a similar way that they chose to begin the 9th chapter, and that is with Paul's emotional declaration of his love for Israel. In chapter 9, he declared that his heart was broken, that most of his fellow Jews had rejected Christ. In fact, he went so far as to say he was willing to be accursed himself spiritually if they would be saved. And he begins with a similar declaration here in chapter 10. Let's read it now. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, our text. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Of course, the antecedent of that pronoun is Israel. For their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now what we have in these four verses is a lament for Israel. Lament, of course, is a declaration or passionate expression of grief. We have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, and it is the words, collection of the laments of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet for his own country. Now, Paul's lament reminds us of a similar one by none other than the Lord Jesus. When he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not. So the title today, A Lament for Israel. I expect there are some here this morning that are grieving, lamenting the lostness of someone that you love, maybe a spouse, a child, or some other loved one. Be encouraged today by the words of the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul in chapter 9 explained that salvation was through God's elective purposes, his sovereign choice, Paul is no fatalist. He understands that a sovereign God works through means to save the lost. And one of the primary means the Bible says he uses is the prayers of the saints. And so let's uh, begin in the first point in chapter 1. That is prayer without ceasing. Verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Now one's heart's desire is not a passing or a fleeting interest. This is an ongoing burden and a source of the Apostle Paul's pain. This is what he most sincerely cared about. So what would and should we do as Christians with that which causes a burden and pain and anxiety? 
Well, there are several invitations in the Bible for what to do, and they're all very similar. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. There's an invitation to bring our burdens to the Lord, and the way we communicate with our Lord is through prayer. Prayer to God for our lost loved ones. Now, when he says that his prayer to God for them is for their salvation, again, this is not a one-time passing fancy. This is his habitual pattern of prayer. It's ongoing lifestyle, in other words. And, and what he's praying for is not just their physical safety. He's praying specifically for their spiritual salvation. He's praying for their souls. Now, every Monday morning, and I'm sure if the sun comes up tomorrow, there'll be no exception tomorrow, my assistant, Wendy Price, begins to collect that week's church-wide prayer list, and it grows longer by the day. And often, she'll receive notes or emails or calls early Monday morning, can you put my relative on the prayer list? And she'll take down the prayer need, and usually it has something to do with some physical ailment, some grave diagnosis that they have received. But at least two or three times a week, there will be a prayer request that says, pray for cousin so-and-so, they have been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z. And then parenthetically, Wendy will have to decide, also they're not a believer. And I think sometimes that we tend to bury the lead when it comes to our prayer burdens. What could be more important than the fact that someone's not a believer? That our heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they'll be saved. That, that's biblical. Matthew 16, 26 says, what good will it be for a man to gain the whole world? and lose his own soul. You can pray for your children and grandchildren to go to a good school and graduate and get a good job and have good health and, and enjoy their life. But if they die without Christ, they're lost. Paul understood that about his own kinsmen, the Jews. Now, I don't want you to go away thinking that Paul was only negative towards his Jewish brethren. He was not. In fact, he had very high esteem for them in one area, and that was their religious zeal. And so he admits something in verse 2 that is praiseworthy about Israel. They have zeal, but he says it's zeal without knowledge. Verse 2 says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now the word zeal is sort of antiquated. It's been replaced by the word enthusiasm in our vernacular, but they mean the same thing. Zeal, I think, is a more robust word. Not many words start with the letter Z, so we can easily remember it. Zeal or zealous it speaks of eagerness and enthusiasm in the pursuit of an object. We tend to admire as humans those who are enthusiastic about their pursuits, whether it's an athlete on the field of play, a person who gives it their all, we say is zealous or enthusiastic. We root for that person. A musician who obviously is enjoying playing a piece of music. They're zealous. We, we like that. Um, we, we like a businessman who works hard and tries to reach his business goals. That's something that's been ingrained in our culture. But zeal sometimes, and quite often, truly, is misguided zeal. And misguided zeal is incredibly dangerous. In fact, it's almost always very destructive, especially the kind of zeal Paul's referring to here, which is religious zeal. 
And I don't have to remind you, we uh, commemorated just a few weeks ago, September 11, 2001. That whole difficult day in our history was related to zeal without knowledge. Those Muslim men, no one in here would dispute, were zealous about Islam. They were so zealous, in fact, that they were willing to die as, as young men in the prime of life. But it was misguided zeal. And Paul is not accusing his Jewish brethren of terrorism, but he's saying your zeal is misguided and the person that's going to be most affected in the end is yourself. See, Paul's Jewish brethren had zeal. They worked hard. They rose up early. They stayed up late in pursuit of righteousness. They made sure their children knew the scriptures. They sent them to Hebrew school. They tithed of their material possessions zealously. So much when Jesus referred to them, he says, they tithe of their herb garden. If you have some herbs out in your backyard, basil or some things like that, can you imagine every Saturday night picking your basil and counting out 10% to put in the offering plate? That's what they did. They wanted to be zealous pursuers of righteousness. They kept a long list of their good deeds and works, but they died, most of them, and went to hell because their zeal was in the wrong thing. Their trust was misguided. They were thought they were on the road to heaven. They sincerely believed they would end up in heaven, but they did not. That's a tragedy. How tragic to believe all your life you're heading in the right direction, only to find out in the end you were not. That was Paul's lament. This was the source of his ongoing grief, that his kinsmen, the Israelites, and, and I think one of the reasons Paul was so heartbroken is he led some of them into that path. He at one time was their leader. He said of himself as touching zeal, more zealous than my peers. He was at the top of his class when it came to zeal until he saw the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he saw true holiness, Paul's zeal for his own righteousness evaporated. And that's what he wanted from his kinsmen. He sees them on the wrong path and he's nearly shaking them out of their slumber. Wake up! You're on the wrong path. And rather than thanking him for telling them they were on the wrong path, they plotted to kill him. Because theirs was, thirdly, a religion without righteousness. Again, speaking of Israel, he says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, the key word in this whole section is the word righteousness. Underline it, highlight it, circle it, do whatever you have to do so that the next time you read Romans 10, you'll be attracted to that word. Righteousness is one of those words that has very different meanings depending on the context in which it's spoken. For example, if you're talking about one of your neighbors, you may point and say, now there is a righteous person. What do we mean by that when we call another human a righteous person? Well, we probably mean that he's upright and ethical, someone anyone would like to have as a neighbor. They practice good morals. Someone who's known for good works and ethical virtue, in other words. But that's not the kind of righteousness that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about God's kind of righteousness, which has an altogether different connotation. 
When we speak of God's righteousness, we're talking about something very well defined. It is holy perfection. And only God has that kind of righteousness. The kind of righteousness as Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting on his throne with his robes filling his temple. Those angels were buzzing around. They were declaring God's kind of righteousness. Holy, holy, holy. It's not just that he's morally and ethically virtuous. He is virtue personified. He is goodness personified. And no human has that. And yet God says in his word, he lies not, that if we are to spend eternity in heaven with him, we have to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And guess what? We're not. Jesus went so far to, to say to the people of his day, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Now that blew their mind because they didn't know anyone more righteous in their definition than the Pharisees. If you don't think the Pharisees were righteous, just ask one of them. They'd be happy to tell you. Jesus knew their heart. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery already. He went on to say, if we even have unrighteous anger, we've committed murder. And so what he's doing is he's knocking out the piers and beams of their self-righteousness to lay them low and lay them open before God to humiliate them so that they would see their need of a Savior. What a gracious act it is that God humbles us. When we talk about human righteousness, it's always relative to another person. That is, that person is righteous compared to most or to that person. But friends, when we talk about God's standard of righteousness, the worst or even best person you know is not the standard. He is the standard. And the mistake of many of Paul's Jewish peers is that they thought they could attain God's kind of righteousness through human means. No matter how sincerely, though, they believed that they were on the right road, they weren't. And that's true to this day. No matter how sincerely you or your friend or your loved one believe they're on the road to heaven, if they are not, it will not get them to the destination they want. And let me say this very clearly. The path of works righteousness that Paul is describing when he's describing his Jewish peers, the path of works righteousness is a road that leads to hell every time. Just as surely as rank paganism and idolatry surely leads to hell. And as sad as that truth is, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave it there. He holds out a ray of light, a, a beam of hope. And, and that's our fourth point. Verse 4 teaches salvation without exception. He uses a transitional word there. In English it's for or because or instead. Is the end of the law, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Underline that word, everyone. Now, in what sense is Christ the end of the law? Well, there are several ways the Bible teaches. We have to read the context here to, to discern which of those meanings he has. So, for, for one thing, 
the word end can mean a logical conclusion, right? Um, in other words, the purpose of the Old Testament law, Paul may be saying here, was to ultimately point to Jesus. Because he said already here in Romans that the law can't save anyone. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, if that's the case, that's certainly true. Many other passages of Scripture teach that. And so maybe he's saying that when we try to keep the law and we realize we can't, and then the only thing left is to run to Jesus and sue for peace, right? Ask for grace and mercy. That's true. He may mean that the word end of the law means that uh, Christ has brought the dispensation of the Old Testament system to an end. And that's true. We know that because as Jesus was dying on the cross, the veil of the temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that we don't need that Old Testament system. We don't have to have sacrifices every week. I didn't see anyone bring a livestock trailer to church today. You don't have to do that because the book of Hebrews says he's the once for all sacrifice. So he brought that old covenant dispensation to an end and he instituted the covenant of grace. That may be what Paul means, but I don't think it is. A, th a third possibility, and the one I believe he's speaking of here, is the word end in the Bible often means fulfillment. Jesus is the completion of the law. I believe this is the primary meaning Paul has in mind here. Jesus certainly completed and perfected the law. How so? Well, in Matthew 5, 17, he said of his own work and mission here, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Now, Russ lamented earlier that he doesn't think we spend enough time teaching about the ascension of Christ, and I think he's right. There's a lot of things we don't spend enough time talking about as it relates to Christ, but one I think we are negligent about, even more so than the doctrine of the ascension, is the doctrine of the perfect sinless life of Christ. And it's a good reason. We want to skip ahead to the cross. We want to get to the atonement and the forgiveness that comes through that. But there could be no atonement if Christ were not qualified to be our substitute. And if Christ sinned in any way, he'd be like us. He would not be qualified to die in our place through substitutionary atonement. But the Bible says, thankfully, that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and it speaks to the perfect, sinless life of Christ. So let's read verse 4 again and insert that meaning of, of end there. For Christ is the perfect keeping of the law on behalf of all who believe. That's what it means. He's speaking here of the doctrine of imputed righteousness. See, the Jews and most every other practitioner of any ism in world history is under the delusion that somehow they could attain God's kind of righteousness through human achievement. And whether you call it Mormonism or Roman Catholicism or you call it Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, they're really all shades of the same color. It's the pursuit of God's perfection through human achievement. And all of those isms have one thing in common. They all fall short. The only way, the only true path to heaven is through imputed righteousness. That is, 
If any human is to have God's kind of righteousness, he or she must understand that they cannot and will not ever earn it. Rather, it must be received by grace. Synonym of the word grace is gift. That's what Paul means in Ephesians when he says salvation is by grace through faith. And even that, faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I know you've all heard that. Have you ever wondered, I know that intellectually. I've memorized that verse. or I've heard pastors say it so many times. It's ingrained into my consciousness, but I've never really had a firm grasp on the definition of saving faith. What is it? Well, the generic definition of faith is believing the word and promises of God. So here was the rock of offense that so many of Paul's beloved Jewish friends stumbled over. That the path to God's kind of righteousness is not the path of personal achievement, but of humble faith. And every time they, they kind of grasped it, they tripped over it and fell down again. Tripped over it and fell down. They just couldn't get by it. Because here's where they always ended up. Paul, if I believe what you're saying, that would mean my dear, dear great-grandmother who loved me so well and was such a kind-hearted woman who meticulously went to synagogue, who meticulously taught us kids the Ten Commandments is not in heaven. And that person who lived for 60, 70, 80 years as an idolatrous pagan in a foreign land who heard your message and believed on Jesus is in heaven. It tripped him up. And do you know where I have heard that same resistance to the gospel message more than any place in the world? St. George, Utah, where we planted a church a year ago. Yeah, I, I know what the Bible says, Mr. Sanders, but my family's always been Mormon. We, we believe these things for three, four, five generations. I, I've heard it from other faith traditions. I just can't accept that I don't have to do something to fill up what Christ has done. Yes, I, I, I believe in Christ died on the cross for my sins, but to that I've got to add baptism and communion and all the other sacraments. And, and then maybe, maybe I'll go to heaven when I die. Paul was facing that same kind of resistance. He called it a stumbling block. And yet here he is offering it without any sort of complication or amendment. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, he doesn't say for everyone who reforms their lifestyle, for everyone who does the sacraments, for everyone who follows this prescription. He says, no, Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness for everyone who believes. So again, Salvation is by grace through faith. What is faith? Well, the Puritans understood faith probably more than any of us. And they taught that faith has three elements, and I think they're right. Number one, they say saving faith requires knowledge. That is, you have to know the right facts about Jesus. You have to believe that he lived and died and rose again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That, that no one can be saved without hearing the gospel. That's why, by the way, we send missionaries to foreign lands. 
because we believe they can't be saved until they hear the facts of the gospel. And so we try to translate the Bible into their language so that they can hear it in their language and understand it, have knowledge of it. That, but that's only one element of saving faith. You, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on the cross and rose again and, and not be a Christian. How do I know? Because the devil believes that. His demons are great theologians. They're not going to heaven. So you have to have knowledge and then you have to have assent, the theologians say. Now what is assent? Well, it's acquiescence. It's belief or agreement with. And the way I say it here is you have to agree with God's assessment of your condition. The Bible says you're a sinner and you're lost. And no matter how good you are in comparison to your neighbor compared to him, you're a sinner. You fall short, Romans 3.23 says. And you, you have to not only know that Jesus died for sinners, you have to know that you're one of them. <laughs> and as Paul said, the chief of them. But still, that's not enough. The third element of saving faith is what the Puritans called affiance. And I'm willing to bet no one's used that word in 20 years in this room. You have, you just didn't know it. The word affiance means to trust in another person. And it's where we get the word fiancé. And so when you pledge to one another to get married, you're trusting that person is going to keep their word. You're entrusting yourself to them. And it means not only you believe the facts of the gospel, and not only does it mean that you agree that you're a sinner, it means that you put your trust in what Christ did in your place and nothing else. That is, you're putting all your weight upon Him. Charles Spurgeon called it the recumbence of the truth. Now I have a neighbor, I see him out nearly every Saturday morning riding his recumbent bicycle. You've seen these guys. They lay almost flat back on the ground. He has an orange flag extended 20 feet above him because he doesn't want to be run over as well he should. It's a recumbent bike. He leans upon it with all of his weight. Spurgeon called this the recumbence of the truth. Not just that we know it intellectually or that we agree with it, but we trust in it. And may I ask you in our last few moments, what are you leaning on for your salvation? What are you trusting in? I didn't ask if you knew the facts of the gospel. I didn't even ask if you believed you were a sinner. I'm saying, what are you trusting in? If it's Christ and anything else, you're on the wrong path. If it's Christ and His finished work alone, you're on the path to heaven. But here's the thing about those two paths that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there are two roads, and they're entered through by two gates. And one gate is small, and it leads to a narrow path, and as Newton wrote, it's full of dangers, toils, and snares. The other path is different. It's wide gate, you can go in in large groups. I get the picture that it's a well-paved four-lane superhighway. And it looks like the easier path to take. Jesus says many are on that path. Here's the problem. That path leads to hell. It's the path of human achievement. The other path is hard. You're in the minority. But it's the road that leads to heaven. But here's the thing that I didn't really put together until some years ago I heard a preacher say it. And it stuck with me forever. 
The sign on both of those gates says, this way to heaven. Right? Those friends of yours who aren't trusting in Christ believe in something. And in fact, many of them are very sincere in their beliefs. And in fact, if we're honest, some of them are more zealous for what they believe than we are. At least from externals. But here's the hard truth. Salvation is not through sincerity. Salvation is not through zeal. Else the Jews would have been first in line in heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you're trusting in your church membership or your family's name or the amount of money you've given over the years, you're on the wrong road. It's the road to hell. But if you're trusting what Christ did in your place, you believe it, you assent to it, and you've got all your weight leaning on it, praise the Lord, you're on the road to heaven. Let's pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I lift up my prayers to you today. And I have to confess, I'm not God. I don't know anyone's heart. Lord, I know what the Word says and what Paul was so passionate about to the point where he said, my heart's desire, what keeps me up at night, and what I constantly pray for is the salvation of my friends and loved ones. Father, I pray you'd give us a burden at First Baptist Keller for the citizens of North Tarrant County. Many of them lost, many of them sincere, many of them thinking they're on the path that leads to heaven. Many of them, Father, very zealous. Many of them lost. Father, I pray that we would love them enough to warn them that they're on the wrong road. That the road there only ends in heartache and hell. Father, may we live such lives of integrity in front of them that they, they would want what we have. Peace with you. Father, I pray for many souls in our city who are blinded by religion. Who are blinded by their family history, blinded by the culture they grew up in. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes, show them the truth. And then, Father, I pray you do the miracle of regeneration. Would you grant faith and repentance to those souls who we love? Father, when you do that, we're going to be very careful to give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.